Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of the Lord that we're going to be focusing on today in the next couple of weeks. May he add his blessing to its reading and to its preaching. Amen. You may be seated. As we get into the word for this morning, would you please pray with me? Ask for the Lord to bless us and to be with us as we sit under his word. Our Heavenly Father, we bring so much into this room with us that is not marked by your holiness and, Lord, that is not the result of your name being hallowed in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we carry so much with us when we gather together as a people called by the name of Christ that doesn't truly reflect hearts in which that name is being sanctified. And I pray, Father, for your forgiveness. I pray that you would cleanse us this morning from every sin and every weight, every defilement of body and soul. God, that you would cleanse our conscience in the blood of Christ in fresh ways this morning. That we would be renewed in our hope of your beloved and eternal Son laying aside his glory and his rights as God. To join with us in our darkness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great love with which you've loved us and the mercy that you've shown. And uh, we pray that you would work in each one of us this morning, Lord, to the end that the glory of the gospel would be more fully and more truly and accurately displayed. We thank you, Lord, that you were pleased as man with men to dwell. And uh, I pray that we would rest in that reality, Lord, that we would trust in your grace and that we would draw near to you in hope this morning. 
Father, may your blessing attend us. May your nearness be known. And may even unbelievers who might be among us today know that you truly are here with us. Please help us, Lord. Give us eyes of faith to see and to honor you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray in the name of your beloved Son this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to start looking at this last section of what we often refer to as John's prologue, which this last section runs from verse 14 to verse 18. And um, this morning, we're primarily going to be focusing on one part of verse 14, which is the beginning part. John 1.14 is the Gospel of John's uh, testimony to what happened on Christmas. I hate reading commentaries that say that Matthew and Luke are the only ones that talk about Christmas. Um, that's not true. Right here in John chapter 1, verse 14, we have one of the clearest and one of the most powerful declarations of what took place on that day when God the Son was born as a man among us. We have the reality that the Word of God became flesh. Now in this verse, the reference to Word, that's the uh, first time that this person that we're talking about has been referred to as the Word since verse 1 of this chapter. And so what, we're being, what John is doing is he's taking us back to verse 1 and drawing our attention back to this person as he is described in verse 1. This person who was before the beginning, the one who was before all creation and before all time, the one who was in fellowship with the Father from before anything else was, the one who in fact was God in his own essence and nature, that one, John says in verse 14, is the one who became flesh. Now he's drawing also back to verse 9 of John chapter 1 and explaining what it means that the word was coming into the world. This true light which enlightens every man was coming into the world. That's what John 1.9 says. Well, how was he coming into the world? What was he doing as he came to enter into this world? Well, John 1.14 tells us how he was coming. He was coming in the flesh. Now, as we look at verse 14, or at least this one phrase of verse 14, there are three things I want to point out this morning. And then after I point those three things out, just three observations, I want to close on four reasons why it's important to understand that Jesus was not merely a man, but was in fact God in the flesh walking among us. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me point out a few things from this one phrase, the word became flesh in verse 14. As I said, verse 1 describes the word not only as the one who was with God, but the one who in his nature was God. Verses 3 through 4 says that this one word, this person described as the word is the creator of all things. 
the one through whom all things were made, and he is in himself the source of every human being's life and light. He is intimately involved with each one of us. So when verse 14 states that the Word became flesh, we are to understand that it is nothing less than God Himself becoming flesh and living among us. That's that first point that I want to point out, that when the Word became flesh, God became flesh. This verse is explaining, as I mentioned, what's stated in verse 9, that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. How was He coming into the world? Not as God robed in bright and unapproachable light. Not as God breaking in upon us, cloaked in his terrifying majesty. But as eternal God robed in human flesh. Now, in this, we see something that's really remarkable and you need to pay attention to it. We've grown so accustomed to the idea that God the Son became a man that we missed the glory of what exactly happened when God the Son became a man. In, in this incarnation, which is how we refer to the Son of God becoming man, He was incarnate. That means He was enfleshed. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. In the Son of God taking on flesh, we see the love and the compassion and the tenderness of God towards us. As God drew near to rip us free from the tyrannical grip of our own darkness, He did not approach us wielding the full force of His holiness and His unveiled glory. If He had done that, we would not have survived. You remember what He said to Moses, no man can see my glory. No man can see me and live. And so in the incarnation of God the Son, we have God humbling Himself. We have God graciously condescending and bowing down in order to approach us on our level. Drawing near to men as a man, right? In the man, Jesus Christ, we have God who declared no man can see Him and live, standing before the world and saying, now come, behold me. And live. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God, with us. Some of you were thrown by that hymn, weren't you? You thought, wait, it's not Christmas. Why are we singing that hymn? I got a good friend that says Christmas is every day for the Christian. And if you're not celebrating Christmas every day, you're not living like a Christian. Well, as glorious as this truth is, we need to understand that this statement of God becoming man, God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, this is one of the most scandalizing truths that has ever confronted the world. In fact, I would say that if you do not sense how scandalous and even in some ways how offensive the idea of God becoming man really is in your own heart, then you have, not, you have not yet begun to think about what exactly it means. To say that our eternal God, our creator, the one through whom all creation was made, to say that he entered into his own creation by becoming a part of it, 
That is, without a doubt, one of the most outstanding claims of Christianity. That the one who is infinite became finite. That the one who is unlimited in himself took to himself an existence that was limited. That the eternal one bound himself to live in time. That the omnipotent one willingly became weak and needy. That the independent one became dependent. That the omnipresent one became localized. That the almighty lawgiver was born under the demands of his own law. The holy, holy, holy one became a servant of sinners. That the transcendent God took our nature to Himself in such a way that it can actually be said without exaggeration that He became flesh. And that He did this in such a way that it did not change or even diminish in the slightest His own inherent nature as God. There's a reason why this statement of Christianity was the most controversial and debated topic in the first 500 years of Christianity. There were numerous attempts that were made by men to try and reconcile this historic reality with what human reason declares to be possible. We have things like adoptionism, Arianism, Nestorianism, Monophysitism, like that one. Eutychianism and Apollinarianism being forms of monophysitism. All of these are various heresies that developed within the first five centuries of the church that were nothing more or even nothing less than man's attempts to try and take the mystery of the incarnation out of it. And to make the incarnation of God comprehensible to the human mind. Well, listen, we need to freely acknowledge from the outset that the incarnation of God is, in fact, a great mystery. One that the human mind cannot fathom or understand. It is, an, it is the finite seeking to hold in our minds the fullness of ability and the workings of the infinite. That cannot be done. And the moment you begin trying to bring that infinite God and all of his dealings and workings down to your level so that it can be grasped by your mind, you diminish the truth and you diminish the glory of God. But in spite of our inability to understand exactly how it could happen that God the Son would become a man fully and totally human and yet fully and totally God, not conflating the two, not mixing the two, not becoming something other than God or something other than man, but at one and the same time, one person being fully God and being fully man, operating according to both natures without mixing or diminishing either one. How that can happen, we don't know. 
But despite the fact that we cannot understand exactly how that happened, here at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John unapologetically declares to the entire world that it in fact did happen. That this man in Jesus of Galilee, who walked those dusty roads and lived and worked among common and ordinary people and taught sinners in their synagogues and ate with them and drank with them and slept right beside them and got into the boat with them. This Jesus of Galilee was Himself God walking among them. And you don't have to understand how that mystery can be possible in order to understand that it is in fact something that happened. When the Word became flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now at this point, we might ask John, John, how do you know that Jesus was God in the flesh? That's something that we're going to come back to next week. But the answer to that is in John 1.14, where John tells us that they knew that this was God in the flesh, not merely because Jesus said that He was God in the flesh, which He did, but actually because they saw the manifestation of His glory. And it was the kind of glory that demands that they understood Him to be God in the flesh. It was glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how they knew that this was this man walking in Galilee, this man named Jesus, was more than a man. He was eternal God manifested among us. They saw his glory. As I said, we'll look at that again next week. And that's really the essence of what we're going to be looking at as we walk through the rest of the gospel. We're looking at the glory of this man, Jesus, testifying to us that he is, in fact, God. So when the Word became flesh, God became flesh. Now, a second observation from this verse I want to point out here is just thinking through what does it mean that the Word became flesh? What does it mean that He became flesh? Well, I've already hinted at this, but one thing it does not mean is that he became less than or something other than what he eternally was. He did not cease to be eternal God when he became flesh. He did not lay aside his divine nature when he took upon himself human nature. He became fully human while at the same time never ceasing to be or changing his nature as God. So one, what does it mean that he became flesh? It does not mean that he changed in his essence as far as who he eternally was is concerned. But secondly, it does mean that the Son of God took to himself the fullness of our humanity. That is a marvelous reality. And I, for some reason, just can't get over it this morning. I'm thankful for that. What it means that the Son of God became flesh, it means that He took to Himself the fullness of our humanity. 
He did this in a way that did not alter his divine nature in the slightest. And yet, still truly and fully did become the man, Christ Jesus. There's a couple things involved in that. One, he took to himself a human body. He was no ghost. He was no mere appearance of a man, as the docetist or docetist would say, which many believe that's who John is writing this section of the gospel against. They believe that Jesus was not incarnate, but that he just appeared to be a man. That he didn't actually become flesh because the material world is evil. And if God entered into the material world in that way, God would become evil and necessarily cease to be God. Well, that's what the docetists believe, and that's not what the Bible teaches, right? But he took to himself a human body. One that was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Romans 8, 3 says, I believe. He took to himself a human body. A human body that could experience the trials and the frailty of life in this fallen world. You need to understand that. When Jesus became a man and dwelt among us, he was not living in his own personal bubble of paradise in the midst of a world of pain and suffering due to sin. When Jesus became a man and took upon himself flesh, he took upon himself a fleshly nature that was subjected to the effects of the fallen world around him. Though he was in himself without sin, though he was holy and pure, he was still subject to the suffering that we experience in this world as a result of sin. You need to get that. Because that's what helps you understand He is not a Savior who cannot be touched with my infirmities. He is not a Savior who is untouched by my weaknesses. He is one who knows intimately and exactly what I'm going through every moment of every day of my life. He took upon himself a human body that could experience the trials and the frailty of life in this fallen world. He took upon himself a human body that could experience things like hunger. God becoming hungry. Could experience things such as tiredness, injury, illness. A body that could be touched and handled as 1 John 1 1 to 3 says, even a body that could be crucified and pierced and put to death, and yet to the last without sin. Jesus took to himself a human body. But there's something else that needs to be added to that. In taking to himself the fullness of our human nature, he also took to himself a human soul. He was not merely God the Son as Spirit poured into the shell of a body. That's not who Jesus was. If He was that, He was not fully man. He took to Himself a human soul. One that could suffer. One that could mourn. One that could weep and be anxious and be troubled. One that could have pity and compassion upon sinners. 
In becoming flesh, Jesus took to himself all that belongs to our human nature apart from sin so that he could truly become human and be counted as humanity's representative and savior. He fully, in other words, he fully became one of us so that he could truly and fully unite himself to us and give us everything that rightfully belongs to him. I, don't, I didn't draw this into this sermon. I wanted to. But you've got to see this connection between John 1, 12 and 13 and John 1, 14. What gives you the right to become a child of God? The fact that the Son of God became a man like you. What gives you the right as a human being to declare yourself to be a child of the eternal and infinite God? Only that the eternal and infinite God became a man in order to elevate you to such a status. We'll get to that in the future, I hope. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that since the children share in flesh and blood, that is children, that's talking about those who were given to the Father, or excuse me, whom the Father gave to the Son so that the Son would save them. In eternity past, the Father gave to the Son certain people, certain sinners that He entrusted to the Son to save. When the Son came, it says, since the children share in flesh and blood, since they share in the fullness of a human nature, he himself likewise partook of the same. That is, he took upon himself the fullness of our nature. And you notice one reason why he did that is mentioned here in this verse. Why did he become a man? Why did the Son of God have to become one of us? It was so that he, as God in the flesh, could die for us and deliver us. It says there, he became, he took, he, uh, children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let me ask you this question in application. Are you one who is still afraid of death? Do you still fear to approach that gray curtain that's going to come upon us all? Do you still live your life in denial of the fact that you are coming to an end where you will lay your body down and someone else will put it in the dirt and your soul will fly on to meet God? Are you living in denial of that reality? Do you fear it? Are you afraid of its approach? Let me tell you something. Jesus became one of us so that he might deliver us from that fear. You, if you are a believer in Christ, you have no need to fear death any longer because what makes death fearful has been taken away in His death. He has taken our sin upon Himself. He has taken the judgment of Almighty God, the, the wrath of God that ought to fall on all of us because we have broken God's law and God's law demands our death. Jesus took it all upon Himself when He died on the cross. And He rose again in victory over death so that you and I would no longer have to fear it. Are you living in that freedom? Listen, regardless of your opinion of COVID or anything else that's happening in the world, you have to recognize this. 
that the world in its rejection of God is seeking to control and manipulate people and exalt itself as God. The way they're going to manipulate and control us is through fear. You reject God, you reject the reality of the afterlife and the judgment to come and eternal life that's on the way. What else do you have to live for? Only the things that are in this life. The world has no power on the one who is willing to let go of everything that is in the world. That's how we have to live. And that's, that's what the Son of God came to give us. Freedom. He came to deliver us from death. There's another element to this though. In Jesus dying for us, it wasn't merely to deliver us from the fear of death. It was so that God in the flesh could be our full and true Savior and deliver us from death. Remember the message of John 1, 1 through 18, is it's setting the scene for how God came in order to deal with our darkness and to deliver us from our corruption. What is that darkness in which we are trapped? That darkness is the darkness of sin. And the wages of sin, according to God's law and His justice, is death. That's what we deserve. If God would save us from sin, you need to listen to this. If God would save us from our sin, according to God's justice, He would have to take our punishment which is death. But here's a problem with that. God can't die. Can God die? Despite the world's claim that God is dead, God is very much alive. He cannot die. If God would save us from our sin, then He must satisfy the punishment that His own law demands that our sin deserves. But God cannot die. And therefore, God in His nature cannot satisfy the death penalty for us. So what is to be done? If God would be our Savior and truly redeem us from this darkness in which we are trapped, if He would rescue us from death, then He must be able to enter fully into the depths of that darkness. He must be able to enter fully down into the depths of death. He must be able to die for us in order to deliver us. And that is exactly what He has done in God the Son becoming a man. He came to be one of us that He might die for us. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2, so that in his death on our behalf, on behalf of his people, Jesus, the Son of God, might be a good and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, so that the man Jesus Christ might offer up a sufficient and worthy sacrifice on our behalf unto the Father one that would make an eternal propitiation for our sins. Do you understand the glory of that? Propitiation, wrath, satisfying sacrifice, the removal of your sin, absolute deliverance into this realm where you stand in favor with God. That is what Jesus Christ has done through His death. 
He's made propitiation as your high priest, as your representative in the presence of the Father. And the only thing that enabled him to do that for us is that he willingly became one of us. Which is the third thing I want to point out from verse 14. Notice thirdly, in Christ, God not only became flesh, but he willingly became flesh. Notice in verse 14, it says that the word became flesh. I think the King James Version at this point is a little confusing. At least as it relates to the original Greek or the Greek text. The King James says here, and the word was made flesh. And the word was made flesh. You grammarians out there. Is that an active tense or is that a passive tense? It's passive. Right, Nick? Corbin? My fellow Greek brothers? That's passive. That makes it sound as though the Word becoming flesh is something that was done to the Word. It was something that happened to Him and He was passive in that process. The problem with that translation is that the verb here in Greek is not passive. It's in the middle tense. Greek has a middle tense. I know this is not what most pulpits talk about, but it's really important. (laughs) Greek has a middle tense, and in this context, it's reflexive. What that means is, this is something that the Word is doing to himself. The word becoming flesh is not something that happened to the word. It is something that the word did to himself. Now we're going to see this in the gospel of John as we move forward. But the greatest expression of the father's love for the world is his giving of the son. You think of that in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Or you can think of it in Romans 5.8, the demonstration of God's love for us is that Christ died for us. The father, over and over again in the Gospel of John, is described as the one who sent Jesus into this world. But here's what we need to be careful to make sure we don't begin thinking. We need to make sure we don't think that the son was unwilling To be sent. According to this verse, the Word, in clothing himself with flesh, willingly clothed himself with the fullness of our humanity. He voluntarily took flesh and blood and united himself to humanity. Or in the words of Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7, even though he existed eternally in the form of God, that is, he existed in the fullness of the nature of God from all eternity past, even though he existed in the fullness and the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he did what? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. 
Yes, the Father sent him into this world. Yes, the Son emptied himself and came into this world. He emptied himself of all that rightly belonged to him as God. He emptied himself of his right to be served. He emptied himself of his right to put his glory in fullness on display. He emptied himself of the rights belonging to his exalted nature and his God status. He emptied himself of those things and he became a slave, it says in this verse. How did he become a slave? By taking upon himself the form of a servant, by becoming like a man. Being made in the likeness of men. In other words, this is not something merely done to him by the Father. But this is something that he willingly did to himself. In the broader testimony of Scripture, we find other statements that make very clear that the Son of God did not come into this world begrudgingly. You remember in Psalm uh, chapter 40, verses 7 through 8, it's, it's a, a psalm that is prophesying the coming of the Son of God, written, written 700 years before he came. It says in, the, in these verses, or hundreds of years before he came, it says in these verses, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my inner being. Your law is in my heart. Now the Father's will was for the Son to step down from His position and glory and enter into our darkness so that He might save us from it. By becoming one of us, by clothing Himself with the likeness of our sinful flesh, forever forging a holy union between Himself and those sinners whom the Father entrusted Him to save. But listen, what we need to understand, and as this verse testifies to us, He did this not out of a begrudging willingness, but he did this because it was his desire and his joy and his delight to do it. You may not be sensing the glory of that, but let me just highlight one aspect of it. Beloved brother, beloved sister, you need to behold the glory of this truth. The Son of God, the Word, willingly took on human flesh and united himself to you. He willingly stepped down from his rightful state in glory in order to join himself to us in our darkness. Beloved, if he so loved us, if he was so willing to join himself to us, then will he not be willing to gladly receive those who joined themselves to him? This fact that in history the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as one of us makes clear that not one of us who share in the same human nature with Him have a right to doubt His willingness to save us. 
I'm not saying that you don't, you ought not doubt his willingness to save you. I'm telling you that you do not have the right to doubt his willingness to save you in light of the fact that he became one of us willingly. Some of you, I know, you struggle with assurance of Christ's love. You struggle in, 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 in understanding or believing that God will have you when you come to Him. You have too deep a sense of your sin. You know your shame too well. And you feel that it is just impossible to believe that God would love someone like you. What you need to understand, whenever you're feeling that way, I, I'm with you. I'm in that boat with you. I think there's not a morning when I wake up where I don't struggle and have to reconvince myself of the love of God for me. Because I know what I am in myself. I know my sinfulness. I know my failings. I know my weaknesses. I know that I don't measure up to God's standard. I don't measure up to my own standard. I'm with you in that boat, but what we need to understand when we start doubting God in that way, that is nothing less than our own pride smacking God's face. That's your pride talking. That's you saying, I'm not good enough to come to God. I'm going to wait until I am, and then I will come to Him. Isn't that a denial of the gospel? Doesn't that undermine the very purpose and reason for which the Son of God stepped down into this world? He did not come to save the righteous. He didn't come to save those who, didn't th who could save themselves. He came to save sinners. He came to the weak. He came to the needy. He came to the despised. He came to the outcast. He touched the lepers, right? He raised the dead who could not help themselves. Lazarus could not make the choice to come out of the grave. Jesus came willingly to him and called him forth. That's us spiritually, guys. And to say that we need to clean ourselves up in order to come to Him so that He would be willing to save us, that is to deny the very essence of the Gospel. It's a serious offense. It's not just... It's a false piety is what it is. Thinking that you, you, you've got such a sense of holiness to you that you just can't imagine that Christ would receive you. That's not holiness. That's unholiness. Because holiness conforms to the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us that God willingly receives those who come to Him. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Good is the Lord and ready to forgive. Abundant in loving kindness for all who call upon Him. None of those who call upon the Lord will ever be put to shame. Jesus said, no one who comes to me will I ever cast out. His incarnation proves the depth of God's seriousness when he makes statements like that to us. And when we fail to believe them, we're not only showing our faithlessness, but we're making a statement about what we truly believe concerning God. That he's not really what he says he is. He's not really like the way that he describes himself. Now, the incarnation of Christ tells us otherwise. That he is. He came willingly to be with us as one of us. 
And we need to trust him for that. Now, in conclusion, I've got four points that I want to make as we close our time today. Four reasons why I believe it is important that Jesus, why I believe it's important to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Number one, and probably the most important for each one of us personally, is that according to Jesus, you cannot be saved from your sin if you do not believe that he is God in the flesh. Not just a God, but the eternal God, as he describes himself in John 8, 24, the I am the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, the one who had delivered Israel out of Egypt. What is that, Jude 5? Jesus says in this verse, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now that he there, this is the NASB, and this is one reason why I like the NASB or the Legacy Standard. Uh, I believe even the New King James does this. But where it says he there, it's slanted. If you don't know this already, that's telling you that that's not in the original, that's not in the Greek. That is being supplied by the translator to help you make sense of the passage. But in the Greek, the wording there is ego I me. The very phrase that's used to describe God as the I am in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Jesus says very clearly here, if you don't believe that I am, If you don't believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. Why is that? Why do you have to believe that God is, or that Jesus is Yahweh, in order to be saved from your sin? Well, there are a number of reasons I could give. I'm going to just list one here. If you do not believe that Jesus is the eternal God, the I am that is revealed in the Old Testament, then your understanding about who God is is skewed and you are worshiping an idol. If you're going to worship the Father, you must worship the Son. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. John 1.18, no one has even seen God at any time in reference to the Father. It is the only begotten God. It is the Son, the only begotten Son, who has made Him known. And if you will not come to the Son in order to learn who the Father is, you will never find an approach to the Father that leads to grace and salvation. It is only through the Son that we come to have a true understanding of who God is. John 14, 9, Jesus tells us, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He can say that because he is, in his essence, one with the Father in deity. He is God in the flesh. John 12, 45, Jesus says, he who sees me, sees the one who sent me. To look at Jesus is to look at the fullest manifestation of the eternal God that we will ever have. And to observe his life and ministry is to behold God himself living and ministering among us. So when we're reading this book, when we're looking at Jesus in the gospel account, you need to have in your mind that what you are seeing here is no mere man. You are beholding God on that page. 
You are hearing God in His teaching. You are seeing God work in His miracles. You're being, you're being brought face to face with the eternal God when you come to Jesus. So if you will not acknowledge God in the flesh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved from your sin because your conception of God will be nothing more than an idol. Number two, believing that Jesus is God incarnate is a test of whether or not you actually have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Many people struggle to understand whether they have the Spirit of God in them. What it means, what it looks like, how to discern that. Well, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 3 tells us that by this you know the Spirit of God. Here's a test to discern. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, in the letter in, in 1 John, when we talk about Jesus Christ, we are talking about the eternal Son of God become man. If you confess the eternal God in Jesus with a true heart and full faith, then you can be confident that you are from God and that the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. He says there, verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and now is already in the world. If a person confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh, he is one or she is one who has been given spiritual eyes to see the truth about Jesus. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. Listen. If all you see when you look at Jesus Christ is a special man, if you only see a special man, if you only see a miracle worker, if you only see Jesus as a good teacher, but you do not see Him as God in the flesh, as one who is worthy of your love, as one who is worthy of your worship and your faith and your adoration, then you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Jesus says in John 16, 14, that when the Spirit of God comes, He will glorify me. Now if in your heart, Jesus Christ is not being glorified as God, or 1 Peter 3.15, the way it puts it is if Jesus Christ is not being sanctified as Lord in your heart, then the Holy Spirit is not in your heart. If you do not see Jesus, the glory of God shining in His face, 2 Corinthians 4.6, then you have not yet been saved. A test of knowing whether the Holy Spirit is truly in you is gauging how you view Jesus. Do you see Him as worthy of worship? Are you drawn after Him in holy adoration and simplicity and purity of devotion? Do you worship Him with Thomas as your Lord and your God? If you don't, then you are not yet saved and the Spirit of God is not yet in you. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Are you overwhelmed by a spiritual glimpse of His glory? Are you in awe of seeing His majesty? Do you behold the glory of God when you look at Him? 
If so, that manifests the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. Number three, only an incarnate God makes sense of the way that the Old Testament prophesies about the coming Savior. Only an incarnate God, only a God made flesh, makes sense of Old Testament prophecies that describe the coming Savior. Romans 1, verses 2 through 3, it tells us that at the heart of all the prophecies in the Old Testament was God the Father communicating to us the reality that His divine Son was going to be born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's what God was prophesying about throughout the entire Old Testament. In other words, God would become man in the incarnation of the Father's Son. That's what the Old Testament is telling us about. And apart from understanding that reality, the prophecies that declare that make no sense and, in fact, would be blasphemous. You guys still with me? So I have a hard time gauging that. Uh, I don't mean that as a statement against you. I mean that this is my problem, judging you by appearance. I don't know what's going on in your heart. Are you with me? All right. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Now look at this. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gabor, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now how can a child who is going to be born to us and a son who is going to be given clearly clearly referring to a human child. How can a child being born to us at the same time be called by the Holy Spirit, Mighty God, Everlasting Father? How can a human being, a merely human being, be described like that? It's only if this child who was going to be born to the human race was fully and inherently God that this verse even makes any sense. Otherwise, it's not only false, but it's blasphemous. Or Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. This psalm declares in worship to God, Elohim, that his throne is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. Now, it's right to praise God for this. It is right to praise Him for the fact that His throne is established in righteousness and that His throne will never come to an end. But notice how this worship in verse 6 relates to what is stated in verse 7. In verse 6, God is being worshipped as the eternal one whose throne will never pass away. And in verse 7, it says... Because you have loved righteousness, still referring to God, because you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Now wait a second. You have one person being called God who is also at the same time described as having a God. Is the Old Testament all of a sudden teaching 
that there are two gods? Deuteronomy 4.39, it says that Yahweh is God and there is no other. Isaiah 45.22, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved for I am God and there is no other. How is it possible then, in light of these statements in the Old Testament, to point here to Psalm 45 and say there are two persons being called God in this verse, or in this, in this psalm? How is that possible if there's only one God? Is the Old Testament contradictory? Or is it revealing something to us about the complex nature of the God who is speaking in the Old Testament? That's what it's doing. How then can Psalm 45, 6 through 7 call two persons God? Only if both of those persons truly are God. Right? Amen? One of the most striking for me was Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. In this passage, I won't take the time to read it, but in this passage there are clearly two persons who are called by the name Yahweh. And you remember what we just saw in Deuteronomy 4.39, there is only one who is Yahweh, and that is the one true God. And yet here in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we have one person called, God, or called Yahweh being sent by another person called Yahweh. We have Yahweh sending Yahweh to come dwell in the midst of His people. How is that possible? Are there more than one Yahwehs? Are there more than one God? No, there is not. How can one called Yahweh send another person called Yahweh to dwell with His people? Only if they both share in sharing the same divine name, also share the same divine nature. The one doing the sending and the other being sent. None of these prophecies, my point in bringing this up, is that none of these prophecies make any sense and in fact seem contradictory, inconsistent, and blasphemous apart from the revelation of the triune God given in the incarnation of God the Son. These prophecies, in other words, make no sense apart from the incarnation of God the Son in Jesus. It is impossible to understand any of, them, any of them without understanding that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So that's my point three. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk with you more. Now in closing, point four. Grace to persevere in the Christian life is granted to us when we draw near to Jesus as the God-man. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It affirms that the Son of God became flesh, and as the God-man was a high priest for us who passed through the heavens. It says in verse 15 that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet he is without sin. Now, two things I want to point out from this verse, these verses. Number one, 
Jesus, as the God-man, knows exactly what it is like to face every temptation that you will face. Now, if you're not struggling with temptation, if you don't know what it's like to fight against sin and fight long and hard, this won't be comforting to you. But if you are one who is actively resisting sin to the point of shedding your blood, this will give you strength to live a faithful life for the glory of God. Jesus knows exactly, as as the God-man, He knows exactly what it is like to face every temptation that you are going to face. Your lust, your covetousness, your idolatry, your grumbling, your griping, your complaining about God's dealings with you, or maybe most often are complaining about God's dealings with others. He's given them that. Why didn't he give me this thing or the other? Our temptation to despair, our temptation to follow self-will, our temptation towards fear and unbelief and doubt, the temptations to doubt the goodness of his father and his father's dealings with him. Jesus has been tempted in all things just like we are. There is no temptation, in other words, that will come upon us that has not already been personally experienced by God in the flesh in the man Jesus. The difference between his experience of that temptation and our experience is the second thing I want to point out. That even in all of these temptations, though he knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in every way that we are, yet He is without sin in all of these temptations. Now we always hear that in the context of, yes, He's holy. Yes, He's pure. Yes, He's righteous. Yes, He fulfilled the law of God. But you've got to put this in the context of Hebrews. Why is this being stated here? He is, has been tempted in all things as we are, yet He is without sin. Do you see the connection here? It's not only that He was tempted in all the, sin that, the temptations of sin that will come upon us, it's that He learned obedience through the things which He suffered, and He knows how to conquer those temptations. It's not just that he's righteous in himself. It's that in his righteousness, he has learned to overcome the temptations that you and I are going to experience. Do you get that? And then in verse 16, he's seated on the throne of grace and he's ready to give grace and help to us in our time of need. We're closing, but please stay with me. Jesus, as the God-man, the perfect God-man who conquered every sin and temptation, Jesus, as the one who lived perfectly before his Father, he does not right now sit on the throne of grace ready to shame us because of our weaknesses and temptations. God the Son did not become a man in order to show us up and gloat over us in light of our failures. But in order to sympathize 
fully with us in our weaknesses. He overcame sin and temptation as a man so that He would be able to give perfect help to men and women and children who come to Him for it. Jesus overcame every single temptation so that now, as the God-man, He has wisdom and grace to give us as we strive to overcome our temptations. With confidence in Christ's goodness and His willingness to give grace, we can now draw near to Him with confidence when we are being tempted, knowing that He is ready and able to give us everything we need to overcome that temptation. I don't know all the things that you're going through right now. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know exactly what you're dealing with in your walk with the Lord and the ways that you are being tempted right now. Maybe your marriage is a train wreck and you don't know how to fix it. Maybe your relationships with your children seems ruined beyond repair. Maybe the pressures of the world are too much for you and you don't know how to deal with them. Maybe your relationships with other people in Christ's church are strained and you don't know how to make them better. Maybe the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is coming upon you, crouching at the door and seeking to have you. What you need to understand is that whatever it may be, you are not going to gain victory over any of these temptations. You are not going to master them in your own strength any more than Cain mastered his temptations in his own strength. Sin was crouching at the door and, it was, and its desire was to have Cain. And guess what it did? It had him. It's going to be the same with you if you seek to resist temptation and overcome temptation in your own strength. You must flee to the one who has already overcome on your behalf. Don't check out on me here, please. You must flee to the one who's already overcome on your behalf if you are going to overcome and conquer and live the life Christ has called you to live. Remember, the promise of Revelation is not merely to those who made a decision to believe in Jesus once upon a time and far, far away. The promise of, of victory in Jesus Christ is guaranteed to those who overcome, those who conquer their temptations, those who resist the enemy, those who die to themselves and live in contradiction to the world. It's those who persevere in that kind of life, Jesus says. Those who endure to the end. They are the ones who are going to be saved. You need Jesus as the temptation conqueror to give you grace to live a life faithful to God. And we go wrong whenever we try to gut it up and resist temptation on our own. Let me just come with this tactic. Let me adopt this method. Let me just keep my hands busy so that they're not idle hands at the devil's disposal. None of that is enough to save you from that temptation. You need the power of God flowing into your soul from the one who is able to give it. The life of a Christian is not the natural life of a Christian. It is the supernatural life of the Christian. It is God dwelling in a man because God became a man. You need the power of God in your heart and life if you're going to live faithfully for Christ. You know, a lot of the problem that we have in Western Christianity is that our Christianity is impotent. 
We are powerless. We know nothing of the great awakenings and the revivals and the soul-shaking, bone-rattling movements of God that our forefathers knew. And we look around ourselves and we say, oh yeah, God is among us. Oh, is He really? Tell me about your marriage. Does your marriage prove that God is among you? I say this with love. Don't talk to me about your ministries in this world if you are struggling in your marriage at home. I don't want to hear it. Do we know the power of God, really? Jesus is seated on the throne of grace. He's overcome. He's conquered. He's ready. He's willing to give that power that we need. And he gives it to those who in confidence draw near to him as the one who is on the throne of grace. Beloved, we got to draw near. We have to draw near. There's no more time for excuses. It's not about being busy. It's not about you being distracted anymore. I know I'm preaching long. I'm okay with that now. But you need to just get this. Have you ever? Th- I spent a lot of time thinking about this on vacation. Not one of you would complain if we sat down together for four hours and watched a football game. Well, maybe. Maybe some of you would. Maybe some of you would. Or we can watch a two and a half hour long movie can read a riveting book, but we struggle to sit under the preaching of the word. Now, I'm a, I'm a weak man. I know that. God's going to have to refine me, and you're going to have to pray for me if you want me to change. But I don't know exactly what you're struggling with. But I do know that Jesus is your answer to whatever it is. And let me say this in closing. Even in the face of your temptations, excuse me, even when you fail and fall into temptation, even in that moment, Jesus is still seated on a throne of grace ready to receive you. You don't have to fear that. In Jesus, we know more fully than any other time in history, any other people was ever able to know, we know more fully in Jesus the truth of Psalm 103, that he remembers our frame, that we are but dust. Jesus knows that. Don't hesitate and don't be afraid to run to him for grace and for help in your time of need. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and Father, hear our cry. In our weakness, we plead. Thou canst not resist 
the sinner who seeks to live for thee. Father, I pray that you would help us draw near to you with true hearts and pure faith. You would help us be gracious to one another. You would help us draw near to that throne of grace upon which your beloved Son is seated. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would comfort our hearts in the reality that you willingly became flesh and dwelt among us. You, you chose to unite yourself to us. Help us draw near to you and refresh ourselves in the hope and the grace of that reality. Lord, be with us in closing. Help us sing this closing hymn with robustness, with full hearts, Lord, and uh, a real, deep, serious worship. And God, we pray that you would sanctify us for your glory and send us out into this world the rest of this week, spreading the good news of your name. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a benediction from John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Part of eating his flesh and drinking his blood is feeding richly on the truth of his word. So may you do that this week. May you find that satisfaction of knowing your Emmanuel, your God, with you in Jesus Christ. May you go in the peace of his name. Amen.